Psalm 77 this morning, so if you want to turn there, study this psalm together. Now, this is a psalm that uh, has some significant lament in it, uh, but it's not only lament. Um, in fact, it's, uh, um, it's quite, a, uh, quite a story of the importance of remembering God and meditating on his word in the midst of our deepest sorrows. So that's sort of the big idea that we're going to explore um, what's going to be coming out of this psalm for us. A real testament to God's brilliance in inspiring Scripture is the fact that beyond any, any way that we could imagine, this psalm is so personal to Asaph. This is a psalm of Asaph. It's so personal that it's universal, right? We're looking in this psalm. We're not going to know what exactly is breaking Asaph's heart. Um, we don't know the nature of his torment. Um, but because of that... It actually, many of the torments that can afflict us, we can actually, this can apply to that suffering in our own life. It can fit so many situations and afflictions. So, of course, the, all credit would go to the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this psalm. We have, uh, we have three selahs, um, four stanzas, and so we're going to actually break this up into four different sections. Lamentation, contemplation, adoration, and then consolation by way of exposition. I'm going to I'll repeat those. First section is lamentation. The second section is contemplation. The third is adoration. And then the fourth is consolation. And of course, the psalmist is achieving consolation by exposition of the word. All right, let's, let's read the psalm. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your, footprint were un your footprints were unseen. 
You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So we'll begin looking at his lamentation. He's crying aloud to God, and he will hear me. So we have to, we have to acknowledge that this psalm isn't beginning with atheistic despair, right? Asaph is coming at this from a place of faith in his God. His faith is holding on in the midst of this difficulty. Uh, this is the same faith that Peter writes of in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a level of faith here that is being tested. God has done great works for Asaph in his life. He has protected him. He's provided for him. And even now in this, in this difficulty that he's facing, that faith is being tested. And it's, it's being proven for the purpose of the glory of God. And while it may not feel as we look through these early sentences, these early verses of this psalm, he will be glorifying God, and he glorifies God uh, rather richly. Notice, too, that he says in verse 1, he says, aloud to God, he says that phrase twice. As we know, repetition uh, in the Bible means a certain amount of emphasis. So his depth of sorrow that he's feeling has to find utterance. And this is all to God, too. This isn't necessarily to his neighbor. He's not bringing his complaint to his neighbor of whatever's grieving him so deeply. He's taking this to God. Uh, man can do nothing for us. God can provide all we need. Charles Spurgeon says on this verse, Asaph did not run to man, but to the Lord. And to him he went, not with studied, stately, stilted words, but with a cry, the natural unaffected, unfeigned expression of pain. He cries to God. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't write a doctoral dissertation <laughs> and deliver this essay. Uh, he doesn't uh, develop a PowerPoint slideshow. Uh, he doesn't um, put together a TED Talk and upload it to YouTube. Uh, he cries to God. This is the pure expression of a broken heart, yet a heart filled with faith in the God that can deliver for his children. In verse 2, he says, In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. He doesn't run away. He doesn't distract himself, only to meet his problem again once the distraction runs out. And he says his hand is stretched out in the night. So not only is he seeking the Lord in the day, but even in the night he's seeking God. Um, with this hand stretched out, this is a sign of intense longing that actually we, we see at other places in Scripture. It's in Psalm 143, verse 6, where the psalmist says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. So we can see the desperation, Asaph's desperation here for provision from God, some balm for his, his heartache, for his distress. He's so intent on reaching for help from God that his arm doesn't even tire. Um, my arms tire at the, at the slightest thing, <laughs> and, and, I, and I put them down, but he's so desperate for help in his deep, deep anguish that he's going to even hold his arm out looking for help, uh, even in the, in the deep watches of the night. 
in an exhausted and sleepless state, his soul refuses to be comforted. He isn't holding out his hand for nothing, because uh, as we know, he is a man of faith, and he believes that God hears his prayers and that he has the power to save him. And yet his soul won't be comforted despite all of the earnest praying. Instead, he does something else. So his soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Now, this is, this is a common theme. I don't know if you noticed it in the reading, but in three of the four stanzas, he uses both words, remember and meditate. That's the, that's the key theme here. Uh, when we're fighting uh, intense heartache, heartbreak, uh, intense sufferings of any kind, he's remembering and he's meditating. So he remembers God. So as we've already discussed, he's not distracting himself with something else. He isn't running away from his problem, his heartache, uh, whatever tragedy is afflicting him. He's not getting acquainted with lighter fare as a way to cheer himself up. He remembers God. His soul is anchored in God. And it's when he remembers as well. It's not if, if I remember God, I moan. If I meditate, my spirit faints. This is a certainty. The Almighty God is on his mind in the midst of all this heartache. Even if the awareness of him isn't completely comfortable, right? This kind of strikes a weird note for us. We're supposed, we're supposed to think, at least when we tell ourselves this, we remember God and we feel better, right? We meditate and we meditate or pray and our spirits are lifted. But that's not the case here. Um, it's not comfortable at all. In fact, this, uh, this good work of remembering God, this, this thing that, that we're commanded to do and it's our pleasure to do, sometimes that actually can make us hurt. This flies in the face of how we think. Uh, some people would talk about prayer as, almost as if it's a mood-altering spiritual activity. That you say a prayer and everything's fixed. I'm all better, you know. Uh, it's not always the case. Uh, there's some real deep struggle, and sometimes that darkness doesn't lift easily. Remembering God doesn't immediately take away the pain, but it certainly helps. In continuing to remember God, continuing to meditate on his word that accumulates, that has an effect, but it may not be all at once. So I don't know about you, but prayer is hard. And intercessory prayer, if we're praying for other people, maybe a, a situation going on in someone else's life, um, that can be really hard. And it doesn't always end quickly. Um, the suffering doesn't always end quickly. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. You said that was New King James? My spirit is overwhelmed. Yeah, that's a good rendering, too. Kind of fainting under a heavy load. Yeah, yeah. I've felt that. I don't know if anybody else has felt that before, but, <laughs> but many other Christians have felt that, including Spurgeon. Uh, he's, so, he's so great on this topic. Um, he had his own struggles with spiritual depression and, and difficulties in his life. Again, from Spurgeon, talking about this psalm, in inward disquietudes, uh, his inward disquietudes did not fall asleep as soon as they were expressed, but rather they returned upon him. 
and leaped over him like raging billows of an angry sea. It was not his body alone which smarted, but his noblest nature writhed in pain. His life itself seemed crushed to the earth. You might say overwhelmed. (laughs) When he remembers God, he doesn't immediately breathe a sigh of relief. His soul still refuses to be comforted. His spirit faints uh, as he meditates. So we've heard the lamentation, and uh, it's a pretty deep lamentation. So let's get to his contemplation in verse 4. He is so troubled that he cannot speak, right? So verse 1, he's been crying to God, crying aloud to God multiple times. Maybe he's worn his voice out. Uh, Maybe he's run out of words. Maybe he's tired of saying the same words over and over again. He's so troubled that he cannot speak. He's all out of words. He's made his full complaint to God probably multiple times through, through, through this one night. And he's arrived at the point where his spirit simply groans. The words fail the man whose heart fails him. That's Spurgeon. I can't take credit for that. But words fail the man whose heart fails him. Uh, if, you, if you would, if you want to turn to Romans 8, just for a second, I want, to, I want to look at something there that speaks to this groaning spirit, uh, perhaps not being able to pray as we ought. Romans 8, 23 through 27. Uh, Actually, well, end of verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So no matter the cause, whether personal sin or grief or sickness, the Spirit helps us in our weakness when we can't pray or don't know how to pray, maybe as we ought to. So this is one very particular way that the Spirit helps us. He intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray, um, when our groanings end up being too deep for words. And I think maybe Asaph received some benefit like this during his suffering as well. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what you mean when you've arrived at the point that you can't say what you mean anymore. He knows exactly, and he can put it in exactly the right way before the throne of God above. So when you feel defeated in your prayers, and maybe it seems like you're wasting your breath or just tiring out your brain, you don't have to worry. The Holy Spirit perfectly brings your prayers to your Heavenly Father and mine. Okay, now to verse 5. To the days of old, I consider the days of old... Years long ago. So obviously, again, Asaph isn't counting sheep, trying to get to sleep. He's tackling his problem head on 
in the way that honors God, by meditating. So if his mind is full of the wrath of God in his lamentation, he's feeling such heavy weight, uh, maybe a sin burdening him. Again, we don't know the, the true reason behind the psalm. Um, but if his mind is full of the wrath of God, he's going to search out the record of God's faithfulness in the past, and he's going to fill his mind with that instead. So he's going to, the, the goal here is to, is to crowd out some of that despair that he's feeling, some of those the dark thoughts, dark feelings that he's feeling. He's going to crowd them out with light from God in his word. Matthew Henry says, When he remembered God, it was only the divine justice and wrath. His spirit was overwhelmed and sank under the load. Particularly, he called to remembrance the comforts with which he comforted himself, I'm sorry, with which he supported himself in former sorrows. Here's the language of a sorrowful, deserted soul walking in darkness, a common case even among those that fear the Lord. By recalling the faithful works of God, especially ones of deliverance, and we're going to see some of that as we go through the psalm, perhaps even uh, stories of God's faithfulness from our own life experience as well, from our own testimony, God's own faithfulness, particularly to us in, in the individual sense, we can begin to slog through the deep valley of the shadow of death. So he's going to consider the days of old, the years long ago, and he's going to say to himself, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. So why do you think that he, he turns to trying to remember his song? Any particular ideas of why he goes to trying to remember his song? This is speculative, so there's no, I don't think there's any wrong answer here. I'm just curious if that rings a bell for anybody or makes you think of anything particular. Why he would immediately go to, let me remember my song in the night. So in that case, a song is, a, uh, is almost another way of saying praising God. It's, it's, it's becoming equivalent to sing a song is to praise God. Yeah, I think, I think you're on to something. Any, anyone else? Any other idea? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we could all attest to the, the comforting aspect of, that music can have in our lives. Um, you know, you think about the, uh, the sufferings that, that King Saul was under that only David could, could help with as he played his harp. Um, in, my own, in my own basic thought process, when I was considering that same question, I thought, well, he's trying to remember a psalm because he's a psalmist, right? Kind of song is his stock and trade. Um, I could imagine maybe he had some uh, self-accusatory thoughts as he was struggling to find a song. Like, you know, I have one job. How pathetic am I? Here I am, so under the weight of my own sorrow. 
I can't even remember a song. And I'm a psalmist. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that, that probably brought its own level of, of discouragement and, and dark thinking. He's trying to remember a song. Let, let me remember my song in the night. He's well acquainted with um, the power of music uh, as, as delivered by God himself, uh, a true gift to us, a true gift to his children. So he's been pleading with all his heart up to this point, even to the point of his words failing, even to the point that the remembrance of God deflates him rather than lifts his spirit. And he's in such a deep despondency, he's even forgotten the, his passion for his calling, which is song. And yet, and yet, he, he still continues to search. He still continues to search for consolation. Uh, he, he says, let me meditate in my heart. Then... So he's beginning to meditate in his heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. He makes a diligent search. So here he is. He's, he's fallen all the way to the bottom. He can't even remember his song, and yet he's making a diligent search. This is a deep, deep faith acting uh, in this psalm. I myself would have already reached for a distraction at this point. Yeah, this isn't working. Uh, maybe I'll go find a funny video on YouTube and get myself to sleep. Uh, or, or, or reminisce on some funny memory that I had, a, a, a momentary distraction. Yeah. Yeah. No, me too. Me too, absolutely. Uh, some level of of meditation in his heart is even on his own experiences with God, God's own faithfulness to him in, in Asaph's own life. And, and that's a good practice for us too when we're finding discouragement or we're feeling distant from God for whatever reason is search, search your memory, search your memory of God, God's faithfulness to you in your own life. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a very blessed uh, enterprise. So Asaph's making a diligent search, and he comes up with a series of questions here in verses 7 through 9. Perhaps this may be the fruit of his diligent search, or maybe acting these questions produced fruit from his diligent search, because if he has these questions, he can take these questions to Scripture and perhaps arrive at an answer. That's actually something that I'd like for us to do uh, for a few minutes here. We're going to take his questions one by one and, uh, and, and put some scripture against them. So his first question is, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Well, what do you think? <laughs> What's the answer to that question? <laughs> it's a big old no, right? <laughs> no, he, he certainly has not spurned forever. He is very favorable to his people. Now, this isn't the only psalm to ask this question. Uh, in fact, Psalms uh, 79 and 80, which are both Psalms of Asaph, as well as Psalm 85, which is a, a psalm by the sons of Korah, all ask, within the course of that psalm, the same question thereabouts. Will the Lord be angry forever? And the resounding answer is, he will not. One passage that can speak to this is Isaiah 12, verses 1 through 3. In fact, I think it gives a brilliant answer to this question. It says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for you were angry with me, 
your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Notice the passage mentions salvation three different times. If you're looking for a song, that's a pretty good song. Let God be your song. Let his faithfulness be the lyrics to your song. Give thanks to God because his anger has turned away. And not only turned away not to ignore you, his anger has turned away that you, that he might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. I will trust and not be afraid might have been a very poignant phrase for Asaph to have considered during his uh, diligent search. Question two, and, and again, I'll ask you, has his steadfast love forever ceased? No, definitely not. In fact, that would be a, a contradiction in terms. Steadfast love, as it's rendered in the ESV, comes from a Hebrew word, hesed, which means a, a long-suffering, covenantal, unbreakable love from God to his people. And just in the Old Testament, there are almost 200 verses that use that term. So it's, it's sprinkled throughout the entire Old Testament. Uh, you could think of Psalm 136, and it extols the, the eternality of God's covenant love in every other line. His steadfast love endures forever. Think about all, as well Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In fact, that whole paragraph is so important, it's, it's repeated word for word in Numbers 14, 18. So this is something that God wanted to cement in the minds of his people. And he's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So he's, it's not like it's a, a shallow well that he's dipping out of, right? He's abounding in it. There is so much steadfast love, he will never run out, and he won't withhold it either. Psalm 26.3 says, For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. And then, of course, we have to, we have to mention Psalm 51.1, which also refers to steadfast love. The, the repentance, the great, perhaps the greatest repentance psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Not according to how good I am or how good I'm being by bringing my sins before you. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Again, just another one from the Psalms, Psalm 89 uses the phrase steadfast love seven times just in that one Psalm. Very important concept in Scripture. One section I particularly like and I think is, is uh, pertinent here is uh, from Psalm 89, verses 33 and 34. But I will not, this is God speaking in the psalm, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant 
or alter the word that went forth from my lips. So this, this steadfast love is a rock-solid truth from God that you can, you can entrust your life to. God will not let that go. God has never broken a promise. So uh, you, also one more on steadfast love. Um, God showed steadfast love to David uh, as the king, and uh, that same steadfast love was promised to his son Solomon, and that comes from 2 Samuel 7.15. And what's also interesting is that that love toward David is remembered by Solomon in 1 Kings 3.6, uh, where he's, he's praying and he mentions steadfast love. And in fact, he mentions that phrase, steadfast love, according to the ESV, several different times in his temple dedication prayer. So this, this concept of steadfast love is all over the Old Testament. It will not pass away, and it has not passed away. Um, so that answer to that question is certainly no. And uh, I would certainly hope that Asaph would have basked rather richly in the, uh, in the promise of that steadfast love toward him. His third question, and again, tell me what you think. Are his promises at an end for all time? No. <laughs> Very much no. Yahweh had not only delivered on so many promises by the time Asaph was writing this psalm, but he was, a, he was going to come through on so many more promises as redemptive history unfolded. So many more. Namely, of course, in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and session of Jesus Christ. A few of those promises were that uh, God had promised, and for any of us who were here during the, uh, the Genesis Sunday School, I think this was drilled into our heads, that he had promised land, seed, and blessing to Abraham. God had promised to deliver his people from Egypt out of slavery. He promised to dwell in the midst of his people forever. And then, of course, uh, a great promise that he promised to send a Messiah to save his people from their sins. Now, what's interesting here in, in speaking for practically the entire Old Testament is Joshua 21.45, and it delivers a very uh, simple declaration. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And, of course, there was still more to be fulfilled, even at that time. Um, 2 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20, certainly speaks to promises fulfilled in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20 says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him, in Christ, is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The appearing of Christ was the full payoff for even those earlier promises, not to mention the promises that were to come uh, through the rest of redemptive history. So those promises that, that Joshua claims, and it rightly says, were, were answered, were delivered on fully, that is still true. They had an immediate fulfillment at that time for uh, the house of Israel. But those promises prepared and secured the people from whom the Messiah would be born. So in a sense, there's an immediate 
answer, an immediate deliverance on those promises, and yet more promises to come, even from those, that they were foreshadowing a greater fulfillment of promise to come. Those promises ensured the very genealogy of Jesus uh, that we learned about last week in Sunday school. Uh, Speaking of Rahab, Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise of God, whether delivered in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. 2 Peter 1, verses 2 through 4, says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So notice that these these promises, and we're speaking of the entire biblical record here, These are are precious promises from Christ, even in the Old Testament. These promises are precious and very great promises. And they come with a particular fulfillment that maybe we might not see immediately when studying the Old Testament, but through them, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The whole purpose of every promise of God was not to accumulate riches for us to accumulate riches or to achieve new levels of, of benevolence or, or, uh, or uh, elevated status, but it was to be partakers of the divine nature, to be united with our God, with our Savior, that we could have close communion with our Creator. And his promises are far from an end, right? Jesus himself left us with a promise that he would leave us He would leave and a comforter would come. We would have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that he would go and prepare a place for us. And then he would return in fully and completely and without any more mediation between. He would would return and God would dwell with his people eternally. And God has already made good on all his other promises and we can be firm on the reality that that will occur. God has always kept his promises. Fourth question, has God forgotten to be gracious? No, that is a resounding no. Here's a scripture that speaks to this. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, right? This sounds very familiar, I'm sure, by now. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This graciousness is a natural outpouring from his steadfast love, which, as we've already said, never fails. Makes me also think of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. He delivers to his people good things that we don't deserve. He gave his son, and he credited his righteousness to us, having given us the gift of faith in the first place to be able to claim it. Think about this also. When Jesus was reading from the Isaiah scroll in the hearing of the synagogue, Luke's account of that says that the people that were sitting around and hearing Jesus reading the scroll and speaking 
marveled at the gracious words that he spoke. John tells us that we've received from Jesus' fullness grace upon grace. God's not forgotten to be gracious at all. He's gone all out in his grace. He's sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. We, a rebellious people who hate him by our very nature, he's called his enemies, his sons and daughters. He's made the vilest sinners clean. He's exchanged the deep crimson of our sin for the white wool of the righteousness of Christ alone. He's given to every believer everything he or she needs for life and godliness in his precious word. So he's certainly not forgotten to be gracious. And then the fifth question, has he, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Again, sensing a theme here, very much not, certainly not. In the history of the kingdom of Israel, God showed compassion during the military siege by Syria in 2 Kings 13. Uh, verse 23 of, of 2 Kings 13 says, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. So, of course, that doesn't mean God was never angry, but angry has never been a dominating characteristic of God despite what heretics may say about the testimony of the Old Testament. Isaiah 63.7 also brings compassion together with other attributes that we've discussed. It says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them, according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And of course, we know that Jesus was full of compassion, he had compassion on the crowds that flocked to him like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, and he didn't want to send away a crowd of 4,000 after teaching to them from the words of life. He didn't want to send them away hungry. He had compassion on the mother of a dead son whom he raised from the dead. And he's full of compassion on his people right now as he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as our advocate. All right, our third section, adoration. Verse 10, actually verses 10 through 12. He's going to appeal to all of this, right? So he says, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High, which is what we've, we've actually just done. Um, he's asked his questions. I believe he's searched the scriptures out, right? He's made a diligent search. And so he appeals to the right hand, the, the sovereign, almighty power of the one true and living God. Uh, and and we've, we've received some benefit from doing that a little bit here ourselves. We have, in searching the scriptures, appealed to that same full and authoritative expression of his power. So he's not asking any more questions. Uh, he's, he's moving on in his meditation on Yahweh's deeds. He's gone to the word, and he's going to now praise. Which, of course, is, I think, the natural reaction when we go to the word and we look to the deeds of God and his grace and goodness toward his people. We go to the word and we praise. God has shown himself in the pages of scripture and in our own lives to be our salvation and shield time and time again. So God's way is holy in, in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? He does all that is right and good according to his perfect will. And of course, that will entail suffering at times, as we've said, as, and as Asaph is experiencing, he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. 
So this God, what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. The psalmist may have been asking for great wonders to be done before in his lamentation. Uh, perhaps he's, he's praying for healing for someone. Um, perhaps he's some terrible circumstance that truly requires a miracle. Um, but he knows it's true. He knows it's true that God could do this very thing. He works wonders. He's made known his might among the peoples. Again, I, I go back to what we were learning in Sunday school last Sunday about how the people of Jericho were gripped with fear because they knew the power of God in his, his uh, working for his people, uh, how he made the way for them. And then, of course, he's redeemed his people. With you, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of, of Jacob and Joseph. Time and time again throughout the Old Testament, God has delivered his people, whether from slavery or famine or exile, warfare, pestilence, all these things. And sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, those came upon the people of Israel because of their egregious sins. And of course, we know that the greatest redemption of his people uh, for the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham was to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he's undoubtedly redeemed his people. There's no question about it. And if there is a question, you can check with Romans 8, 29 and 30 and take a look at the golden chain and see how airtight that salvation is for his people. So here, a quick question. Is there a biblical story that contains these three elements that we've seen here? God working wonders, showing his might among the peoples, and then, of course, redeeming his children? Because in my mind, there's a particular story that stands out, and I think this is a passage of Scripture that Asaph ran to quickly for his consolation. I'm thinking about the Exodus, uh, the Exodus, and specifically, let's remember, Asaph was wanting to, to remember a song. So if you would, if you want to turn just quickly to Exodus 15, there's a lot of parallel here between Asaph's words and the song of Moses in Exodus 15. So again, I think it's fitting that Asaph would have turned to a song. And, and there's so many parts of this that are highlighted uh, at the end of Psalm 77. Uh, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. 
The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Let the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So we see in verses 16 through 20, there's so many parts of that Song of Moses that are mirrored here, but they're directed back at God, right? The, the Song of Moses is, is obviously recounting the glory of God, but in the destruction of the Egyptians and the rescue through the Red Sea, right? Here, Asaph is, is taking those same details, but putting them back to God as a matter of praise, where he talks about the waters trembling, we see the waters are congealed in, uh, in Exodus 15, verse 8 here. Uh, clouds, thunder, and whirlwind. Uh, this is not only the waters of the Red Sea, but there, there's rain and thunder, a terrible storm happening. And in fact, if you, if you go up into chapter 14, verse 21, it even says that a great east wind blew through and began piling up the, the Red Sea into walls. A storm is going on, and you can even think perhaps of the, the pillar of cloud that was standing between the Israelites and the Egyptians just buzzing with electricity uh, like a storm cloud. That's in Exodus 14. All this earth-shaking language that we see in, in verses 16 through 18 here is contrasted with the firmness of Yahweh's covenant with his people. So the same God who, who makes the seas tremble, who makes the clouds pour forth water, flashes lightning through the skies like arrows, crashing thunder, who, who brings up the whirlwind, whose lightnings light up the entire world. This same God provides a way for his people. And this is where I think we've moved now into the consolation uh, point here. This is where he's finding his consolation. This is a fearsome God, right? We can't downplay that the sovereignty and power of God is a fearsome thing, especially to a sinful people. Very scary. And yet, he's redeemed his people with the strength of his arm, and he made a way for them in the Exodus through the sea, which makes no sense to us, right? We've never made an escape walking through dry land, through a sea. Uh, This is truly a miracle, a miracle way that he provided for his people. And it says here in, in verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. So we might not be able to track his footprints, but we can't mistake his presence and his plan for his people. So Asaph here, I think, has, has really masterfully taken the themes and images of Moses' song from Exodus 15 uh, and the Red Sea crossing and turned them into a, a miraculous story of the sovereignty and love of God for his people, and it fuels his adoration. And I could go on and on about more of the details that are shared between uh, the Song of Moses and this psalm, including uh, him doing his deeds before the peoples, which we saw in 1511. The steadfast love is in there, the steadfast love that he was questioning about earlier in Psalm 77. The redeemed people are in there, wonders are recounted. Um, It seems pretty clear to me that this was 
quite a source of consolation for Asaph. And he leads his people like a flock by the, hands of Mo- by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Um, it's hard to read that and not think of Psalm 23 or um, Jesus' good shepherd uh, um, speech from, from the Gospel of John. The psalmist can rest in the concrete covenant of Yahweh with his people during his great trial. God is not one to make promises and then break them. Uh, as we saw before, God has kept every promise. He's sovereign to provide for everything that he's promised in his word. He defeats his enemies and treasures his children. He is the salvation and song of every single one of his redeemed people. Just like Exodus 15:2 said, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. A good quote from Matthew Henry, God brought Israel out of Egypt. This was typical. It was a type of the great redemption to be wrought out in the fullness of time, both by price and power. If we've harbored doubtful thoughts, we should, without delay, turn our minds to meditate on that God who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, that with him he might freely give us all things. So just to summarize, Christians will face times of difficulty. Some of it will be so heavy, it will humble us and slow our roll a little bit. Those are times which we can expect, and in those times we must remember to remember. We have to remember God's goodness and faithfulness, not only to us personally in the past, in our own memory, but of course the, the, his nature and deeds that are communicated to us in the pages of Scripture. So if you're not going through one of those times right now, by all likelihood at some point you will. And if you are in that time right now, we have to remember, we must know that God is kind and merciful to you, even if you don't feel it, and if the darkness doesn't lift quickly. He who calls you is faithful, and he will not leave you alone. There is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You are not an orphan. Your heavenly Father cares for you and will carry you through your trials just as he's always done for his covenant people. Any uh, questions or comments? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are loving and gracious to us, even when we hurt so badly that we may not feel your love. Help us to cling to you always, whether we abound or whether we're brought low. Help us always to meditate on your word and take in its truth uh, and that you would apply your grace to us in our, in our hour of need. Provoke us to seek you in our darkest hours and find the light of Christ shining brighter than all our fears and our sufferings. Guide and protect us. Bless our worship this morning. May your name be praised above all. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.